Andrew, my son. Uh, okay. <laughs> I might be slightly jet lagged today, so thank you. Yeah. Hey, my name's Jack. Just a sec here while I get set up. I'm the um, Bethany Northeast lead pastor, and uh, welcome to especially those that I don't know or have never seen. Uh, lots of new faces here today. I'd love to actually meet you. So I'll do something bold, though there's probably a lot of you that would come up here. Uh, I'll hang out up here afterwards, and so if you want to, I'd love to put a name with a face and meet you if you're new, and no pressure, I'm not going to make you sign up for any Amway or anything like that, so just love to meet you and and maybe learn a little bit of why you're here today. So, um, like I said, I'm the lead pastor here, and those that worship here regularly will know that I've been gone the last week uh, in Central America, Honduras, and Nicaragua. I have a role at Bethany as the mission pastor for all six of our locations, Right on, something I said. Um, and so we're exploring a partnership with a development organization based here in Seattle called Agros. Many of you, one of the board members is here. <laughs> uh, many of you are involved with Agros, and so some of you are aware that that's going on. And so I was down there with a, a group of uh, staff from Bethany and a couple of volunteers exploring that partnership and looking at a couple different communities that Agros works with, one in, San, in uh, Nicaragua called San Jose, and then a couple in, in Honduras, one called Piedra and one called Bea Vista. So great trip. I'll probably share a little bit about it today, but I look forward to, to sharing more and more about that as the weeks unfold. And I think I took a couple thousand pictures. So I've got plenty of pictures. <laughs> so, um, And today we're in the final sermon in a series we've been in, the Beatitudes in Matthew chapter 5. This is the Blessed are the Persecuted Beatitude. And like Andrew alluded to, this is probably a little more difficult conversation. So I'm going to take a moment just to pray for our teaching, and we'll we'll specifically pray for the persecuted church as I pray this morning. There's a number, I mean, if you look at the worldwide refugee crisis, a lot of that is being caused by persecution. And so we think of it as kind of terrorism on one side of the picture, but really— a lot of that is people fleeing intense persecution in places like Iraq and places like Syria. So we want to pray for them as well. So let's take a moment. Jesus, uh, thank you for the chance that we've had to, to worship you. Uh, thank you for the words even as we sing them uh, that declare your life and your joy uh, given to us. Um, the hope that we have in the resurrection, the, the resurrection that you have given us um, Thank you that your word is alive and true to us. Uh, as we open it together in community, uh, it brings uh, courage to our, our faith um, and convicts us in the steps we take. And God, thanks for this specific word, um, the blessing to the persecuted. God, for many of us in the room, this will be a hard one to get our stories inside of, but we do take a moment now, even praying for those in the world who are facing persecution, people that don't have the freedom to gather as we're gathered this morning, in community, that are hiding, uh, but are still faithful nonetheless. God, thank you for their stories. Um, Would you comfort them? Would you bring peace to the places where they live? Um, And would their witness uh, just shine for us as a symbol of true faith? So God, we dive into their story today, and we thank you for, for Jesus who told that story to us. Praying in his name. Amen. All right, well, tonight um, is the Oscars. How many of you are going to watch? Raise your hands. Come on. Don't be ashamed. There's a couple. 
I will not watch, so I have no idea why I'm telling you this. I don't have a TV, so we won't get to watch. I've never watched the Oscars. Um, but I heard there's a lot of really good movies that are up for awards this year. I actually was going to watch um, that one movie on the plane, Moonlight. I downloaded it. I bought it and I downloaded it. And then I ended up watching Guardians of the Galaxy and Doctor Strange because it was on the screen in front of me. And like, I was like, well, I can save Moonlight for later in these ones right here, you know. That just gives you a little insight into kind of my movie habits. Those are awesome movies, by the way. <laughs> so um, one movie that you're not going to hear much about tonight if you watch the Oscars is the movie Silence, mainly because got, it got awarded for one Oscar. <laughs> I think Finding Dory probably got more nominations a couple years ago. So um, this is Martin Scorsese's uh, kind of religious epic that's based on that 1966 book that all of us that went to SPU had to read, right? Uh, the movie, the book Silence by Sasaki Endo. Uh, so I watched that movie a few weeks ago with Bethany's other lead pastors up at the Cinnabar in Mount Lake Terrace. By the way, that's not a movie you watch at the Cinnabar, okay? Like I'm sitting there with my popcorn and it's all about persecution and you're kind of like, I don't feel like I should be doing this right now. And, uh, it's, one, it's, it's, it's a movie, like many of Scorsese's films, as you've seen in any Martin Scorsese films, a lot of violence, very complicated plot. And so in this movie, it's very similar to uh, Scorsese's film, The Last Temptation of Christ, if you remember that movie from like the 80s or 90s. He returns to that subject. This kind of animated his life and his life's work and sparked a lot of the greatest controversies in his career, and that's the nature of faith. Um, so, and, which is to say that silence is a story, to be very brief, about persecution, if you've seen the movie or read the book. This dogma-defying reality that human suffering uh, amidst torture and, and, and the complicated nature of belief in that space. Um, Scorsese, actually, I read this New York Times article uh, called the, the Last Temptation of Scorsese, and uh, he, he summarizes the book and the movie with one phrase. He says, silence is about the necessity of belief fighting the voice of experience. I loved that phrase. It's about the necessity of belief fighting the voice of experience. And I think I love that because that's a summary of this beatitude that Jesus declares to us today. Blessed are the persecuted, they will inherit the kingdom of God. In other words, uh, he's, he's asking us how, how you engage your faith in the midst of deeply distressing and agitating experiences will prove your faith. Uh, whether that's persecution as in silence, or just simply rejection and resistance. And by the way, I just really quick aside here before we proceed. It's going to be really easy for a lot of you. I can see your eyes kind of rolling back in your heads. Uh, perhaps more than any of the Beatitudes, which is interesting as the last one. This, it's really tempting to tune out right now. Um, to just sort of say, this isn't to ask. Like, I've never been persecuted, you know? This is not my story. Uh, this is not us. Why does this matter today, you know? Or, you know, you know, if you look at kind of the idea of suffering generally, especially for your faith, I've had it pretty good, you know? We have religious freedoms, whatever you think about that in our country. And I'll just say you have, by and large. You haven't probably suffered persecution. But I'll also say don't tune out. Don't tune out so quickly. Pay attention because the words of Jesus about persecution and suffering are not, not only as relevant today as they were then. Like I said before we prayed, there are millions of Christians in the world today that are being persecuted for their faith and suffering tremendous hardships because of their belief in Jesus. I mean, this is the, the fuel for that global refugee crisis is persecution. But also because to one degree or another, all of us who are dead set on putting 
God in the center of our lives, in our work, in our homes, in our school, in our, in our social lives, whatever you, however you put Jesus there, all of us who are committed to seeking first the kingdom of God, that's what Jesus says in Matthew 6, and his righteousness, to following Jesus with our whole lives, not just on Sunday, but also tomorrow on Monday, and then Friday and Saturday too. When, you're, when you seek to follow Jesus and then live within the kingdom ethic that Jesus articulates here, what he says is the broad application of that as you swim upstream against the prevailing culture is going to be resistance. He, he would basically say that the prevailing culture is like a tsunami coming straight at you. And there's going to be rejection. If you really live with Jesus in the center of your life and really live by his words, you're going to face it. So belief, as Scorsese says, fighting the voice of experience. The voice of experience being the world outside and belief saying, hmm, there are some things about the kingdom of God that stand in, in opposition to that world. Not everything, but some things. Jesus said it himself, John 15, remember this? If the world hates you, keep in mind it hated me first. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its very own. <laughs> but you don't belong to the world that's why the world hates you. There's resistance, there's rejection. And so Jesus blesses those who understand that reality uh, and, and seek to leave within his kingdom, live within his kingdom, swim upstream, however you want to put it, who are standing in the torrent of culture. Whether that's because of their refusal of empire, you know, that, and their consequent banishment to a lonely island like John, who wrote the gospel or in Revelation, uh, or the radical identification with Jesus, so they're crucified, just like him. Many of the early disciples were crucified. These men in that movie, Silence, were crucified in the tide waters of the ocean in Japan. Whether it's breaking with the church establishment and um, siding with the poorest of the poor, we see people doing that today. We saw people doing that during Nazi Germany. Uh, or, or leading the fight for equal rights, you know, civil rights movement with Rosa Parks sitting on the bus, Right? She's just saying, hey, every person, regardless of race, religion, gender, has is inalienable rights. And so I stand against that, the, the, the injustice of our, of our culture. There are countless number of people who have faced and are facing res resistance and rejection, persecution. And so I guess my question, or Jesus' question to you is, are you among them? Are you among them? Uh, as you enter your workplace tomorrow, <clears throat> you know, facing a difficult ethical decision, are you among them? Are you going to go the way of... The, the, the boss, the workplace, are you going you gonna to raise your hand and say, no. As you raise your children and wonder about the content coming through their devices, what choices will you make? Uh, or the reality of bullying in your kids' schools and our neighborhoods. I mean, is this you? Is this blessed or the persecuted? Is this you? As you seek to respond to the complexity of our political world, both left and right, okay, it's, nobody is immune to this. Are you declaring that, that, that there's a belief that fights the tide of experience. Are you in that fight? And if you are, I think all of us in the room at a level can say, yeah, I'm in there. And maybe I'm not persecuted. I'm not fleeing immense, immense terror. But I'm, I've been in that fight a little bit in my life. And this beatitude's for you, okay? And so to help us explore this beatitude, I want to look at it through the, uh, the lens of awareness, uh, which is to say this. Re resilient faith in the midst of, this is kind of the thesis for today, resilient faith in the, in the face of suffering and adversity is cultivated through awareness. Really three awarenesses, okay? And so this is, this is what I want to say to you today. Our whole outlook and everything that happens to us in our lives, specifically things that bring on suffering, must be governed by these three things. My realization of who I am, the consciousness of where I'm going, 
and then the knowledge of what awaits me when I get there, okay? That's kind of our three points for today. My realization of who I am, my consciousness of where I'm going, and then the knowledge of what awaits me when I get there, okay? We're going to look at those three things, this beatitude, and then we'll respond together, okay? So first, the realization of who I am. This is, and we're going to start at the end of the beatitude, verse 12. There's three verses here. We're kind of, they're, kind of, they're kind of looking at me like a sandwich, okay? So verse 12 first. Uh, and really, this is what Jesus says. He says, Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. So this last bit, in the same way they persecuted the prophets before you, is really vital to understand the whole of the beatitude and this whole idea of persecution. It's kind of the foundational lens we need to look through to understand it. So what does it mean? What is Jesus saying uh, they, in the same way they persecuted the prophets before you? What's he getting at? And I think he's saying quite simply, do you want, to understand, do you want your, the suffering you're experiencing to produce joy? Because <laughs> that seems kind of weird. Do you want to be resilient in the face of rejection and resistance? Well, the first and, for, first and foremost, what you need to do is make it a regular practice in your life to think about the prophets, to think about those who were persecuted before you and killed for the cause of God. Think about them. Consider their stories. And as you do that, what he says is you're going to draw courage from their stories. You're going to begin to see yourselves inside of their stories and then draw energy for your next step. And there are many stories. You know, there's stories of Dietrich Bonhoeffer we like to talk about here, Richard does. Rosa Parks, like I said, Sophie Scholl, Jim Elliott. There's lots of people you could read stories of that have died for the cause of Jesus. Countless martyrs, countless sufferers, people of God who've lived lives of great courage and you can draw courage yourself from. One place, though, that I, because I think it's always good to look at those stories in the Bible, <laughs> one place that I often turn to as I try and cultivate this awareness myself is in Hebrews chapter 11. You know, the whole hall of faith thing, the cloud of witnesses. I heard it actually said that that passage is actually less of a hall of faith and more of a catalog of sufferers. Uh, it's, it's, it actually is this arresting fact that every person mentioned in Hebrews 11, if you read through it, and there's some who literally, it's gruesome, like people's being sawed in half and things, uh, which is my favorite part. <laughs> like, remember, I like Scorsese. But in, in nearly every situation, in the face of death, in the face of persecution was death. And every circumstance, read through it, the stories, and then go find their story in the Old Testament. If you read Hebrews 11, with, almost without exception, the content of the story links them in some way to the experience of death, suffering, and persecution. And so Jesus would say, look at, that, look at their lives. Just read that chapter. Uh, you're, you're surrounded by them. Thousands of people who've lived before you, millions, great sufferers, persecuted people. Look at them, get inside their stories. These are my prophets who've gone before you. You're not alone. You're not alone in your suffering. So draw courage from that. Go often to these great men and women. Get inside their hearts. Put yourself on the rack with them, you know, uh, and learn how to respond to all that life is throwing at you. Now I can hear somebody asking, why meditate on the lives of the persecuted? Like, why look long and deep at the experience of suffering? You know, it seems kind of sadistic, like going to a Martin Scorsese movie. Uh, it's like meditating on the death of someone by going to a funeral parlor. You know, like that doesn't seem very healthy. Uh, that movie Silence was tough to get through, personally. I, there was a few moments I thought about getting up and walking out. I, I kind of had enough. You know, I got the point. Thank you, Martin. Why look at these stories? I mean, isn't it enough to know that there's a blessing available for the persecuted to kind of say a nice little prayer for them like I did this morning and then to kind of move on? Let me tell you why I think it's important. One of my favorite passages about the meaning of sufferings in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, that's why I had Andrew read it. And uh, 
It was really powerful for me when I was kind of going through a hard time earlier in my life, a deep depression. And I, and I was a new Christian, found this chapter, and it, man, I just, I can't even tell you, I won't go on, but really resonated deeply with me. So I go there very often. And at the end of that passage, Paul makes this important theological claim. Right at the end, verse 16 of, of 2 Corinthians 4, he says, I believe that the suffering in this present time is preparing for us a weight of glory. And this, this is important. This is so vital that I just want you to listen in real quick. It's vital to how we develop resilience in, in, in our faith in the midst of suffering. Which is to say, if you understand what Paul is saying here in 2 Corinthians 4, what he's saying when, when we, he's saying when we suffer in Christ, when you hold on to Christ, when you fix your eyes on Jesus, that su- he's the sufferer par excellence. Like he's the one, the greatest sufferer of all time. And then when we look at other sufferers, what he's saying is it makes us real. It makes us real. Uh, the, now, now you're going, what does that mean? <laughs> I thought I was real already. Like, how more real do I need to be? Like, I'm skin, I'm bone, I'm all those things. Uh, it makes us real. Huh, what does that mean? Well, glad you asked. The, the word glory, the weight of glory is the phrase Paul uses. The word glory etymologically means weight. So it's the weight of weight. That's kind of what Paul is saying. And what Paul is saying is that our sufferings are preparing for us a weight of glory, a weight of weight, a weightiness. He's saying that somehow suffering makes us more real than we are today. The experience of it. That suffering gives us a weight, gives our lives a weight, gives our stories a weight. You might even say like it puts us our journey on a bearing, a compass bearing that's true. Uh, so think of this in terms of your career, just a quick aside here. You know, career is probably important to almost everybody in the room here. Most of us are working these days. Husbands, wives, mothers, fathers, we're, we're generally working. And if, if you have problems in your career, you know, it's going to shake you, right? I've talked to a number of you who are having, like, difficulty in your careers right now. Uh, you're, you're shaken. You're facing challenges at work. Now, if you've completely built your life around your career, like, your entire identity is wrapped around this, in your successes and failures, uh, in what people at work are thinking about you and saying about you, uh, your status in the company, whatever it is. When something goes wrong with your career, some of you are going through some stuff right now, uh, you're not only going to be shaken, because shaking happens, it just happens, right? But you're going to be shattered. You're going to be devastated. There's going to be no you left. I mean, this is why a lot of people who are going through that experience go out and drink a lot after, after work. Because there's no you left. There's nothing left that you can hold on to. And the same goes with parenting. A lot of us put our identities in our children, our relationships with a significant other, or our body image, or our political party, or whatever it is. There's, all those things are constantly shifting and changing. And this is why Paul says that you've got to put your weight in the... Th- don't put your weight in those things. You can't put your weight in those things. They're always changing. Instead, put your weight in Jesus. Look to Jesus. Look at his suffering. Look at the stories of sufferers. They're going to give you a weight. And the more you establish yourself in the love of God, uh, in what God has done, including his suffering for you, the more you look at that story, the more solid, he says, you become. The more weight you have, the more stable you are. So when the world shakes, you know, your children's lives are falling apart, your career is kind of off the rails, life is shaking, you're still stable. You can't be derailed. You become more real. That's what Paul is saying in 2 Corinthians. You become something that you weren't before. So this is what I'm trying to say. Suffering and meditating on the, the great sufferers that have gone before us. It gets you so deeply into God and into God's story. It drives you deeply into his heart. If, if it fills your heart, uh, 
with what God has done for you and done for us and done for the world. And it just gives you a realness that you have never had before. Let me give you a different illustration. You've heard of the story of the Velveteen Rabbit. Remember that story? Some of us have read that to our kids. Uh, there's this part in the story with a skin horse. Remember the, that character? He says to the rabbit, uh, when a child loves you for a long, long time, remember this line? Then you become real, right? And the rabbit says, well, does it hurt to become real? And of course, the skin horse says, yeah, it hurts. It hurts a great deal. But that's why, and that's why it doesn't happen to those who break easily or who have have been very carefully handled. Skin horse goes on and says, by the time you're real, listen to this, most of your hair's been loved off. Remember the skin horse? Uh, your eyes have dropped out. You're, you're really loose in the joints. You look awfully shabby. Uh, but once you're real, you can't be ugly except to the people who don't understand. And I think what the skin horse is articulating is the same thing Jesus is articulating at a level that he's, he's calling us in this beatitude to become so real to be handled and, and get in the lives of people who suffered, the prophets of old, to experience the weight of glory. So much so that when we get inside that, we become people who can experience suffering ourselves. Uh, I mean, how many of you have, have had that experience when you've spent time with the poor, um, with people who've suffered greatly? You know, I was, like I said, down in Central America this week, and I'll just say my heart is so full right now, it's, it's ridiculous. Just a week there, and I'm on the plane, I'm, and people are asking, are you here, are you tired? I'm like, no. Maybe I'm a little jacked up on coffee, I don't know, but I'm, I'm just kind of full right now. And I think that's because I walked through for a week coffee fields with people over and over and over and over again and heard story after story after story of people who had amazing faith in the face of great, great adversity. You can't even imagine and that's what Jesus is inviting us to here in this beatitude, an awareness of who we are and a depth in our stories that comes through, a groundedness that comes through contact with sufferers. Uh, look to them. Let your life be filled with their courage. Uh, let your story be animated by their resilience. That's what Jesus is inviting us toward. So that's the first awareness, the awareness of who you are. <laughs> you, be, you become a great sufferer by being with sufferers is what Jesus is saying. So that's the first one. The second awareness I want to invite us to look at is the consciousness of where we're going. Like I said, this is a sandwich, so we're going to look at verse 10 now. And this is what Jesus says. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Okay? So right there, you're going to notice this promise, the kingdom of heaven, is attached, the same promise that's attached to the first beatitude. If you were with us this entire series, or you kind of know the beatitudes. So first beatitude, verse 3 of Matthew 5, blessed are the poor in spirit, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Verse 10, blessed are the persecuted, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. So he starts and ends the beatitudes with the kingdom of heaven, which by the way, you know, just being a little silly here, but this is not Jesus is running out of new ideas, okay? Like, you know, he got to the most difficult point, he kind of forgot that he already did this one once, like a mulligan. This is not a mulligan for Jesus. I think it's the opposite. Most commentators will actually note that this, this blessing and this beatitude and the first beatitude are kind of like bookends to the beatitudes, if you look at them like that. And they're like reminders that the, fun, the, the fundamental importance of our membership and our status as citizens in the kingdom of God. That's, that's number one, okay? You need to know that. And so this final blessing is, is sort of a stark reminder of our, that our ability to endure in the face of hardship, whatever you're facing, 
and to experience joy. I mean, he's saying, like, have joy. You know, like, dance around when you're suffering. Like, who does that? Uh, that's predicated on your consciousness of your citizenship in heaven. That's, that's, you need to know where you belong, which is one of the great themes of the Bible. You know, if you read the Bible cover to cover, if, if you look at the history of Israel, which is really what the Bible's about, history of Israel, uh, you're going to see one of the great themes is alienation and citizenship. That's a big theme in the Bible, alienation and citizenship, over and over again, exile and homecoming. These are the, this is the story of the Bible. So, for example, Israel is exiled to Egypt. This is an exodus, remember this? And then they're brought home to their homeland, right? And then later they're exiled in Babylon, and they're brought home to their homeland. It just happens again and again and again. Even when they come back to their homeland, you get to the time of Jesus. They're under Roman occupation there. And, and even though the Jews lived in their geographic homeland, you even see this today in kind of Palestine a little bit, uh, there's a lot of talk about being in exile because they were, they're under oppression, which is to say that they're enslaved in their own land. And, and therefore, home isn't really home. Not yet. So if you stand back and look at the Bible a little bit like that, what you're going to begin to realize is the story of Israel and the story of the people of God is actually a kind of small version of the story of the whole human race. Alienation and citizenship. Uh, in the beginning of the Bible, for example, Genesis, we're going to see Adam and Eve, right? The human race, they lose their home. They, make, uh, they were made for Garden of Eden, right? We're made for that place. And the world's a paradise. And, and because we turn away from God there, <laughs> we lose paradise. And then the rest of history is written. This is the loss of paradise. And we're seeing that a lot right now in our society, aren't we? Uh, and at the end of the Bible, which is the, the book of Revelation, you're going to see God recreating that garden and saying, hey, come to the garden city. This is the new heavens, the new earth, coming down from heaven, creating a new place for us to call home. And we're, some, we're somewhere in between that first garden and the second garden. And so the Bible's teaching that every human being actually is in some form of exile, some form of alienation. As First as Peter puts it, that we are resident aliens here on earth. Or as Hebrews 13 says, that this world is not our home. It's not our true home. A lot of us think of it like that, like Seattle, man, we've arrived. Awesome. It's not your true home. That's what the Bible would tell you. So what does that mean, really? I mean, it sounds great, but to be spiritually homeless. Like, what does that mean to be in exile? Well, if you want to come to grips with that, you actually need to kind of understand what it means to, to have a home. A lot of you have homes, well, hopefully. Uh, but what does it mean to really have a home? You know, think of your home right now. Think of the decorations in there and the paints and maybe the mess. I don't know. All the projects you want to do. You know that term, a house is not a home? Uh, many of you know what that means if you've moved. Like, like you move, you get a new house. Andrew and Janae just did this. You get into there, it takes a, a while to make that place a home, doesn't it? It takes quite a while. Boxes in our basement, we moved in in July in our new house. Uh, every week when I want to preach a sermon, I got to go through my boxes of books because I got too many books. And we don't have shelves, you know? Our house is not quite a home yet. If anybody wants to help me build shelves, that'd be awesome. So, uh, and, you know, you have a roof over your head. You have a bed to sleep in, place to eat your meals. I mean, but a house is not a home because a home is where everything fits, right? Where everything is the way you want it, exactly the way you want it. It suits you well. Everything's the way you want it to be. That's what a home really is. Why do you think it wears you down to be on the road? You know, I'm, I'm living this right now, like real. You know, seven days on the road, uh, returning from a week in Nicaragua, Honduras. I'm sleeping in a bed that doesn't fit, literally doesn't fit me because 
I don't know if you know this, but Latin Americans aren't as tall as we are in some cases, so their beds are shorter. Um, so my feet hang over. There's a roof over my head, but the rain hits it, and it's loud. There's food, but it's kind of foreign. I'm not accustomed to the surroundings. The language, I don't understand a word. I actually understand 21% of Spanish according to Duolingo, so I'm good. Two out of five words, or whatever that, I don't know how that works, but one out of five words, there you go. So you're not accustomed to it. The place doesn't fit. You're tired, you know, jet lag, all those things. Home is the opposite of all that. Home is a place of rest. Home is a place where, where things are arranged as you want them. It's a place of safe harbor, restoration. I mean, how many of you love going, you're, you're kind of homebodies, you love going home after church on a Sunday, curling up with a book or a cup of tea? That's what home is supposed to be. Uh, home is a place that fits you and nourishes you and strengthens you. So you see what Jesus is talking about in this beatitude? Blessed are the persecuted. Theirs is the kingdom of heaven. He's calling us toward home, which is the kingdom of God. That's our true home. Your true home is God and God's kingdom, not some place you've made it to be. And your capacity for resilience in the face of great suffering uh, and rejection and resistance, it comes from your awareness of that home. That's what Jesus is trying to tell us. And your longing for return to that home we know we're not in the Garden of Eden. We know there's a promise of a future garden. Where are we? And do, am I longing? How often do you think of that place? How often do you meditate on heaven? Like really think about it and ask Jesus, hey, would you return soon? Because I want to be home. I feel homeless. That's why Jesus exhorts his disciples in this very next chapter of Matthew, Matthew chapter 6, to seek first the kingdom of God. Pray for it. That's why he has us pray for it in his Lord's Prayer. And he says all these things, when you do that, are going to be added to your life. Peace, patience, kindness, joy, great courage, deep faith, resilience. I'll add those things to your life. Just seek your true home. And in other words, you may believe in God today. A lot of you believe in God. But if your career or your family or some political party or a cause is more important to you than God, what you're actually doing is turning something that's not really a God into a God, a home that's not meant to be a home into your true home. And that home, it's like, a, it's like a cardboard box into a freeway. It cannot bear up the weight of your soul. It is not fit for you. It's spiritually like living under I-5 or on, in a motorhome down here on Lake City Way. I mean, literal homeless, homelessness, if you think about it, is brutalizing. It's like to be literally homeless, sleeping in those places, is, as a long-term means of shelter, is destructive to your, your body, your emotions, your, your brain. And Jesus is saying, don't put your home in things that won't last. Seek first the kingdom of God. That's your true home. Put your weight there. Uh, and, and when you do, you'll be able to endure suffering. Suffering is going to come. <laughs> Seek the kingdom of God. Uh, that's why this passage from Hebrews 11 and 12 that I talked about earlier, this great cloud of witnesses, by the way, the word for witness is the Greek word martyreia. It's a great cloud of martyrs. That's what the author is trying to tell us. Isn't that interesting? That's why that passage says, Therefore, since we're receiving a kingdom, this is Hebrews chapter 12, last couple of verses, 28 and 29. Therefore, since we're receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, <laughs> let us be thankful. Let's worship God with reverence and awe. He's saying, or she, seek first the kingdom of God, because the kingdom of God cannot be shaken. Unshakable kingdom. That's your true home. And it's only when you recognize that place is your true home, when you're conscious of that home, only when you make it your true home and Jesus is your king, only then you can face suffering with a sense of joy. Only then will you be able to live with resilience and, and faith in the midst of perplexity. Uh, 
the, the consciousness of where we're going. That's what I'm trying to impress upon you. Uh, the awareness of our truth gives us the capacity to endure suffering, okay? So first you need to know who you are. You need to know where you're going. But then the, here's the last thing. You need to possess a knowledge of what awaits you when you get there. So, hey, we're going home. We're going to the kingdom of God, okay? We're like the prophets. It's all good. Verse 11, here's the sandwich. Blessed are you when people insult you, <laughs> persecute you, say false, all kinds of false things about you, speak evil against you. Rejoice! <laughs> it's a great day! <laughs> because great is your reward in heaven. You need to know what awaits you when you get there. So the philosopher Karl Marx, he would look at verses like this in the Bible, and he'd, call, he'd say, this is what I hate about Christianity. You know, they check their brains at the door. Like, this is, like, great is your reward in heaven. This is opiate for the masses right here. Uh, I'm supposed to trudge through life and, and not fight injustice, is what he'd say. Just kind of wait for the pie in the sky by and by. You know, there's no future here. And, I'll, you know, guess what? There is no future here in the beatitude, that is. <laughs> Like, I wish Karl Marx was here to, to get this because I could give him some illumination. But, uh, no, he was a smarter guy than I was probably. But one quick story from my, my, what I mean by this. There's no future in this beatitude. One quick story from Central America because I know some of you are wondering, hey, what happened down there? We visited uh, three communities, one in Nicaragua that we're going to get to partner with called San Jose, and then two in Honduras. And there's one in Honduras that uh, we visited it's called Piedra de Horeb. And uh, we met this young woman named Vivian there. Uh, do you, Zach, do you know Vivian? Have you met Vivian? Man, throw her picture up. Whoever picture on the deal? I just, I took a bunch of pictures, so this is a good one. Boom. Well, it'll come up. Vivian is probably one of the most amazing young women. She's obviously the one on the right or left there. Uh, she's one of the most amazing young women I've ever met in my life. 19 years old. She's daughter of this guy on the, the right named Don Orlando. He's one of the founders of Piedra. Um, and her story is kind of fascinating because she actually began attending a local college, like a community college nearby, taking some classes, which is totally unheard of in that community, like totally unheard of. I mean, these people are li literally living on less than $2 a day. And, she's, and they don't, a lot of them don't have education. Uh, they're suffering from malnutrition, things like that. And she's getting to go to college. It's crazy when you think about it. In just one generation. And she's doing it. She's benefiting from all of her family's hard work on the land, their tilapia production. That's what they farm. Or I should say she was. Uh, see, a couple years ago, her mom died of diabetes. And in the wake of her mom's death, her dad, Don Orlando, he developed an addiction to alcohol, began drinking himself kind of into a stupor. We, we saw him in a couple states of that while we were together. 35 years together as a couple. And then she's dead in just a few weeks. And it just, he's gripped by grief. You can kind of see it in his body. And as a consequence of that, their tilapia production is falling way behind, way, way behind. We saw it. It's kind of in a little bit of crisis right now. And their coffee, it's, it's the end of the coffee harvest right now. They still have coffee on their vines. It's going to just rot there. Uh, Vivian's kind of caught in the middle of all this. She is sharing her dad's grief. She's lost her mom. And she can see her dad dying as well. And yet she's trying to grasp for these great dreams that she was starting to, to pursue. And so we got to talk with her and walk with her for a few couple days and hear her story. And, um, and through all sorts of broken English and broken Spanish, I, I got to ask her what her plans are for the future. Like, what are you going to do? You know, I know what I'd do. Sell the land. <laughs> get into the city. Get that degree. Do something else, right? 
Uh, and she says, no, my future, she said, mi futuro está aquí. My future is here. And so she's begun to kind of learn tilapia production. She asked some of the elders in the community to teach her. She's never farmed, you know. Uh, she's learning coffee cultivation, <clears throat> which is, by the way, a very difficult thing to do. She's working to take over ownership of the land from, with her brother, from their dad, so they can kind of secure that future so it doesn't get lost completely. Mi, mi futuro está aquí. My future is here. See, there is a future and there is a hope right here. Karl Marx is wrong. Uh, it's not just someday in the future. Eugene Peterson puts it this way, the only place you, ha you have to be human is where you are right now. The only opportunity you'll ever have to live by faith is in the circumstances you've been provided this very day. You're not being called to live for some day, somewhere. And Jesus says, rejoice in this day. Uh, in what day? <laughs> it's not the judgment day. He's not talking about judgment day here. He's not saying rejoice in the day that's coming. He's saying, uh, remember what he says, blessed are the persecuted, theirs is the kingdom of heaven. It's a present promise. It's coming now. Which is to say this, the kingdom of heaven is, is here. It's now. And, you know, it's, it's not withheld. Jesus is not withholding it as like this future thing he's going to just kind of bring to, to earth someday, if we're lucky. It's breaking into the world this very moment. And people like Vivian, you know, and other people we met, I mean, we only, we, sure, we only experience in glimpses, right, and tastes, but those are real. Those are real tastes, real glimpses, and the reward is real today as well. So how can we rejoice in, the, in, in today is a kind of the question I want to leave you with. Like, your, your reward's great. How can you re rejoice in that reward? What's that reward? Uh, well, Colossians 2 and 3, I'll just take us there to, to finish. Here's what the Apostle Paul says. He says, though I've set my mind on things that are above, remember, kind of the kingdom of heaven, it's, and not on things below, you'd think, well, yeah, it's future, right? We're going to the future. Uh, he, he then goes on to say, those things that above are not eternal pie in the sky. They're not someday. Those things, if you look at Colossians 2 and 3, he says, they're within you. They're, they're with you. They're within you. Here's what Colossians says. Colossians 3, 3, you've died, and now your life is hidden with Christ in God. You hear that? Uh, and then he goes, he says before that in Colossians 1.27, our like favorite verse here, Bethany, that the, the reality that you're living in is, is Christ at work in you, the hope of glory, today. It's not someday, like you're going to get there someday. It's, it's, it's God working powerfully through you, energizing your life today. So do you see it? That's the reward that Jesus is talking about here in this beatitude. The reward that he promises is, is that our lives are hidden with God in Christ. That's the reward. That's what people like Vivian have grasped at a, at a level. That Christ is living in her, expressing his life through her. And, and the reward means that we've just won the biggest lottery in history. Like the biggest lottery in history. That the reward of resilience in the midst of suffering is this, this prize of joyfulness in the midst of rejection is the reward of Christ in our lives right now. Not when you die, not when the world gets consumed by some great fire, but right now. This is, I mean, this is not opiate for the masses. It's like smelling salts. It should wake you up. Like, uh, and what's the reward? What awaits us? This joy and this wonder of Christ expressing his life through us. That's what the Bible tells us. It's available today. Like, hold on to your seat for a sec, Okay. 
Because, I mean, the implication is this is amazing. This means that the Father, Christ in you, the hope of glory, your life hidden with God in Christ, the Father uh, treats you, looks at you as if you lived the very same life that the Son lived. Think of that. The Father looks at you as if you died the same death that Jesus died and rose from that death. The Father looks at you as if you made all the same sacrifices that Jesus made. Your life is hidden with God in Christ. You're hidden in Christ. He's in you. He's as you. You're dead. You're raised. You're seated with God, the Father. Everything that's true of Jesus is true of you. That's the reward. Uh, To have your life hidden with God in Christ is to set your mind there in the midst of suffering, in the midst of rejection, in the midst of resistance, to put your mind in that spot to locate yourself and say, I'm in Christ. I'm hidden in Christ. Nothing can shake me. This this means he's in solidarity with me. Jesus stands beside me. Uh, This means I can think of myself as loved by God just as Jesus is. This means I can think of myself as there in heaven with Jesus. I can relish in that. I can rejoice in that. I can treat myself as as if I deserve that. I, I never stop reflecting on that. You always need to reflect on that. That's what Jesus is saying. Work it into your heart. That's what this means, to live your life kind of every day with your mind set on things above. Resilient faith in the midst of great suffering is cultivated with that awareness, okay? That our lives are hidden. So there's a couple of practical things by way of close on that point. I mean, do you realize what this means? Just Karl Marx is so utterly wrong in this point. I mean, if, if the world is all there is, in other words, if working for justice will, and lose my job, lose my reputation, if, that's all, if the world's all there is, that's, I'm not going to do it, right? That's nihilism or nihilism or however you say it. But if I have a blessedness, if, I'm, if my life is hidden with God in Christ, if Christ is in me, uh, if I can leap for joy because of my standing in heaven now, if I know that Christ lives in me, and that he's energizing my life, then I can work against injustice no matter the outcomes and consequences. My life is hidden with God in Christ. It doesn't matter. So like, if I see injustice in my city or my neighborhood, I I see a kid getting bullied at my kid's school, and nobody is saying anything about it, I can stand up against it. And and I don't care if I'm ostracized. My reputation is hidden with God in Christ. It doesn't matter. If I see injustice in my company, shady deals... I can blow the whistle. Well, so what if I lose my job? It doesn't matter. My, my career, my vocation is hidden with God in Christ. If you go down the list of things, your health is hidden with God in Christ. Your relationships are hidden with God in Christ. Your financial decisions are hidden with God in Christ. Your sexual decisions are hidden there. Our broken government is hidden there. Our education system is hidden there. Our environment is hidden there. Everything is hidden with God in Christ. The reward of joy in the midst of all these broken, suffering things is simply to be able to reach out and say, my life, our lives, our world is hidden. We are with God in Christ. So I'm going to ask you, are you doing that? Are you, again, are you suffering in any way, shape, or form today? Probably not persecuted in the way that Jesus is thinking of, but are you facing adversity and rejection If you are, are you also saying, my life is hidden? It doesn't matter. Not at the end of the day. And so that's how I want to invite you to respond today. You've got a little card and there's a couple pens around you. 
I don't know actually what these cards say. I think we've got a variety. Don't worry about what it says. I think some say I can see it. Some say I can see. Some say I want to see. Don't worry about that. What I want you to do is to write on there a place in which you're suffering, okay? A place in which you're experiencing some sort of rejection or resistance or anxiety or fear, whatever it is. It could be a system in our country or our world. It could be a place very personal to you. And then I want you to declare, so write that out, and then I want you to declare on there, my, whatever that is, is hidden with God in Christ. My health, my marriage, my future, our environment, whatever it is, is hidden with God in Christ, okay? We need to work this into our hearts and into our lives. And we only do so as we just kind of declare those things before God and before others, okay? So I'll take a moment to pray for us. And then what I'd love to invite you to do is, as an act of faith, we did this a couple weeks ago, and um, actually, you did them as prayer requests, and I took them down to Nicaragua and shared them with that community on there. And I'll tell you what, their minds were blown when they saw how depressed you are and how broken your marriages are. I'm serious. I'm not kidding. Because they couldn't believe that we're living the same story they are. And I think they would love to be here today and say, yeah, our lives are hidden. Our lives are hidden with God and Christ. So would you take that step of faith today? And so to bring it forward to the cross and just leave it there and say, God, I, I leave this with you because my life is hidden with you. And that's where I want to be, okay? Let's take a moment to pray together and then we'll respond. I'll invite the worship team forward. Well, Jesus, we come to the end of this series and, um, man, I, Jesus, forgive me if I minimized some great declaration for those who are suffering immense hardship in our world. We see them, God. Um, our hearts break for those people. We realize how blessed we are in our world, our country. <laughs> We're rich. And yet, God, we also want to confess our poverty to you. That a lot of us in the room are living with a deep sense of anxiety and fear. A lot of us are living in environments that are breaking us into. We're in workplaces that feel like that tsunami and um, facing family challenges and relationship challenges that feel like we're just going upstream constantly. And so we confess, God, that we are with the persecuted in, in, a, in a small degree. And we, we want to stand with you, Jesus, where you are. So, God, as you bring things to our minds uh, where we're feeling these things, would you give us the faith to step forward now and just declare to you our lives are hidden with you. Thanks for that truth, that kernel of truth, that you've hidden us inside your story, that you're living within each of us, and that you're expressing your life through us. So move us now toward response, Jesus. Thanks for the chance that we have to do so in community. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. I believe that we'll have people to pray with you. Yes. Libby's going to be there. And so if you're coming forward and you'd love to just sit for a moment, Libby's like a prayer warrior and would love to pray with you this morning. The rest of us can respond by just singing and coming to the cross as you're led. Let's worship.